The Fairchild Republic A-10 Thunderbolt II is an amazing airplane. Designed to counter Warsaw Pact heavy armor during the Cold War, it could take a great deal of punishment and keep flying, even with the loss of an engine. That happened to a Warthog pilot during a low-level training mission over Germany years ago. How he handled the situation, in spite of his training, may not have been the right thing to do. Respond or react? That's the question. On this episode of I Laughed, I learned about flying from that. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 70 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by Avemco Insurance. I'm Rob Ryder, and I'm pleased to welcome as my guest today, retired Air Force Major Len Litton. Len sent me a story of how an engine failure during a training mission in the Warthog he was flying caused him to make a quick decision that was actually counter to the training he had received. However, as we've heard on other episodes, it's critical that we be prepared for an emergency, whether we're flying a tactical jet or a J-3 Cub. We'll chat with Len right after this message from Avemco. Ask your flight school or FBO if their insurance covers you when you rent their plane. The answer is almost certainly no. And even if they do, you'll probably still be on the hook for a big deductible. But for as low as $95 a year, an Avemco Insurance Company renter's policy will protect you with no deductible ever. Visit avemco.com flying or call 800-338-8705 and you'll be covered the next time you fly. Now, I learned about flying from that. Len Litton former Air Force pilot is my guest today on I Laughed, and he's got a terrific story that deals with emergency procedures and how to handle them. And that's something that has been a theme that we've touched on several on several episodes here in the series. But Len's got a different take on it. And Len, I am so glad you're here. Welcome to I Laughed. Rob, thank you so much, uh, very much for having me. You know, I'm a, a very frequent listener to your program, and I love what you're doing for GA to try to make us safer. So I figured I'd uh, throw my name in the hat and see if I could get a good story for your listeners to have. When you submitted it to me, I was first impressed by the fact that you're a former Air Force guy and we have a couple of friends in common, which is kind of neat. But before we get to the actual story that involves not just a GA aircraft, but a very, very important airplane for the guys on the ground as well as for the pilots, tell me how it all started for you. Were you the kind of kid that looked up and saw airplanes when you were a kid, or how did it go for you? Well, that's an interesting story, and, and those type of folks, you know, that went to the air show at six years old, looked up and saw, I'll go with the Thunderbirds here because they said I'm retired <laughs> Air Force, the best demonstration team out there. Uh, and said, I want to do that. That wasn't me. Uh, oh, I it wasn't? It was not me. I didn't really think about flying airplanes until I attended the Citadel, the military college in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, of course. In order to graduate from the college, you must take ROTC. I didn't really, I didn't really have a plan to go in the military at that time, but hey, they said, take Air Force. They show a lot of movies. It's the easiest one. So I said, that sounds good to me. Sign me up. <laughs> they show a lot of movies? Hey, what? airplanes, air power, it's all good, right? Oh. And um, about sophomore year, I had a, a mathematics uh, major, and I was doing well in my academic studies. A uh, professor of aerospace science uh, called me into his office, and he said, 
Cadet Litton, have you ever thought about flying airplanes? I said, no, sir, not really, not giving it a lot of thought. He, he was a C-130 pilot, and he did the biggest sell job on me you've ever seen. Flying airplanes is great. You'll get to see the world. You get to do amazing things, and you'll serve your country. He said, plus, I'll put you on scholarship, and I'll give you $100 a month. Well, this was 1983. $100 a month back then was actually pretty decent money. You betcha. So I took a little bit of time to think about it, talked to my parents, and they said, hey, sounds like a good plan. So signed on the dotted line, and uh, kind of the rest is history. Where did you go first? Where did you go for basic training? You go down to Lackland or what? what so happened? I went to, uh, so I, I got my commission from the Citadel, ROTC. Okay, so uh, you you were coming in as a first lieutenant, second first, lieutenant. Uh, second lieutenant. I did uh, that summer before I went to uh, uh, flight screening in Hondo, Texas. I got my private pilot license. Went to Hondo, Texas, flew the T-41, which is the Air Force's name for a 172. Mm-hmm. Did well there. And then I showed up at Columbus, Mississippi in October of 1980. Uh, five for pilot training. First airplane when you got there, what was it? The T-37, the Cessna, the Tweety Bird. Uh, flew that for three or four months and then transitioned to the T-38, the Talon, uh, the tandem seat supersonic trainer. You Graduated bet. in October of 86, and then it was off to lead-in fighter training. At that time, it was Holloman Air Force Base, basically where they taught you how to fly the T-38 in uh, fighter tactics. Alamogordo, New Mexico. Alamogordo, New Mexico. And then on to Davis-Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona to check out the A-10, about a four-month program. And then my first assignment was at RAF Bentwaters in the United Kingdom uh, to the largest TAC fighter wing in the Air Force at that time, the 81st TAC fighter wing, 108 A-10s. And when you were over in Europe, this is where your your I laughed incident took place. Is that correct? That's correct. This was back in the day. If your listeners are old enough to remember, there used to be a country called West Germany and uh, a inner German border and a a very capable uh, adversary called the Warsaw Pact led by the Soviet Union. We four deployed to West Germany, up and down West Germany from the north to the south. We had four Ford operating locations that we kept manned with uh, a dozen A-10s, uh, requisite a number of pilots uh, to s- slow down that Soviet armor that might be coming across the border at any moment, and we didn't know when that would happen. And if you go back far enough, that was the reason the A-10 got invented. Exactly. That was the reason for it to exist. Basically, an engineer was told, make this big 30-millimeter Gatlin gun fly, and they built the airplane around it. And if you look at the front of an A-10, this is one of the coolest things. The center line is the A-10 barrel. The The nose gear is off to the side. So how do you, do you taxi with the nose gear on the on the center line of the of the taxiway or or do you let the or do you bore sight the gun and just go straight <laughs> yeah you try to put the, the nose gear on the side but you're right <laughs> it did offset to accommodate the barrel of that gun and of course that is one of the most uh, fun things beautiful things about flying the a10 is shooting that gun I tell you the first time you pull the trigger it just scares you to death because there's a lot of noise a lot of vibration but uh, going to the range and shooting the gun is what an a10 pilot lives for Let's see, that was somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 or 70 rounds per second? Correct. 4,200 rounds a minute. So uh, you carried, you know, roughly 1,000 rounds. So uh, bursts were about uh, a second, half a second, uh, very short burst. Uh, and, and we had various mix of the, of the rounds in there, armor-piercing rounds, high-cinder explosive rounds. And, of course, when we were training, we used more or less dummy warheads in the, in the bullets uh, so they wouldn't explode. Practice rounds. Right. Well, what happened in Germany on your particular mission that uh, caused you to send me your I laughed story? 
Okay, this is a good story. Of course, I'm trying to remember it well because now uh, this has been a long time ago. Uh, I was a first lieutenant uh, deployed to uh, Alhorn Air Base on the North German plane. Uh, generally, our deployments were two weeks long. We'd go in on a Monday, fly that week, stay through the weekend, and come back out that next Friday, and then another group would rotate in to uh, keep our presence there. So would you go back to Great Britain then? We would. We would. Wow. We'd spend two weeks at a time. We'd go back for three to four weeks, and then we'd go on another deployment. Uh, we generally tried to assign uh, these forward operating locations to a particular squadron so we were able to get familiar with them because there was a lot of uh, war plans and procedures that we needed to memorize in case so, you know, we would have to go that route. So we, assigned, we were assigned to uh, Alhorn for a, a good period of time. Uh, there was a bombing and strafing range just a little bit to the northwest of Alhorn called Norvenick. Uh, and we were uh, had some range time there. I took off with my flight lead. I was a wingman. He was my flight commander, senior captain. Uh, we was about a 30-minute flight. We took a low altitude, 250 feet, 500 feet to the range call the ranger, and then we did our uh, weapons dropping passes first. Generally, we had some practice bombs that we would uh, drop because that was one of our secondary missions. We'd shoot the gun first. Maverick was our, also our primary weapon, and then uh, unguided bombs or dumb bombs, as we called them, was also our secondary uh, weapon if we had to use that. Tell me about the Maverick missile because it's different from the Sidewinders. Is it a heat-seeking missile as well, or what's the deal on that? Yep. The Maverick missile is designed for armor, primarily for tanks as well. It has a big slug in it that uh, can penetrate armor. It was designed to destroy tanks from distances up to three to four miles. Two versions of the Maverick missile, an EO version that, that honed in on contrast, light and dark, dark and light. There was also an IR version that would hone in on heat sources. So the weapon would leave the A-10, basically pitch up to gain some altitude, and then take a steep dive path to gather some mock into the uh, into the target. So the, the 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 target wouldn't have any idea it was coming, and if they did, they couldn't get out of the way fast That enough. would be the idea. And, of course, the Maverick would be a launch-and-leave uh, weapon. You could launch that weapon and then uh, retreat as it guided to the target. Of course, the A-10, uh, the, the, the gun is a point-and-shoot weapon. You have to be on target for that, too. Yeah, it's kind of a manual airplane, isn't it? Uh, at least the A-10A that I flew. Uh, no GPS. I navigated without GPS, if your uh, uh, listeners can believe that. Uh, looking at the map and clocked the map to ground, pilotage just like you're taught in your uh, basic uh, pilot training. That's an amazing thing to be going 300 miles an hour and having to do checkpoints. I guess you make them a little more than 10 miles apart then. Well, yeah. And of course, you know, everybody likes to give the A-10 a hard time about being slow. But hey, at 250 feet, 300 knots is uh, moving pretty good. And the guys on the ground loved the A-10 because it could put, you could put rounds very close because of the way you sighted it. You could, you could take out uh, bad guys very close to the good guys. Exactly. You could uh, have troops in contact, troops in close proximity with good guys and bad guys and put rounds uh, very close uh, to uh, the good guys and, uh, and not, uh, not impact them. And there have been there are multiple stories out there of, of A-10 pilots just doing tremendous work with uh, troops in contact. When I'm uh, talking with one of my Army friends, I'm always very quick to mention that I flew the A-10. Gives me some small amount of cred with the uh, Army and Marine folks. And perhaps a free adult beverage. Uh, occasionally, yes. Yeah. Well, when this, when this happened to you, were you low level when it took place? Tell me what it was that happened on that particular day. So uh, my flight lead had checked into the range. We had dropped our uh, practice bombs, if you will, gravity-guided bombs, and then we generally saved the strafe for last. 
Uh, we had had two strafe passes, and generally we're within about oh a half mile uh, to the target uh, when we're uh, firing the gun. I had come in on my second pass. I had fired the gun about a half second burst. I hit the target, and just as I started to pull off, I got a master caution light. And most of the military aircrafts, you have a uh, caution warning panel that is down by your uh, left knee or right knee, as the case may be. And it's going to have anywhere from 40 to 50 individual lights on it what? that are going to warn you of a problem. The idea of the master caution light is it's up at eye level, and it will blink if any one of those lights on that caution panel uh, come on. So I got the master caution light. Our procedures tell us first to call knock it off, stop what we're doing. I did that, maintain aircraft control. Then I looked down at the panel, and the very first thing I saw was a left engine hot light. Uh, so that told me you know, the T-34 engine in the A-10 is a high-bypass turbofan. So basically what that light was telling me, something in the core of the engine is getting hotter than it's supposed to be, probably because airflow is disrupted through that core of, of the jet engine and for whatever reason. Um, Did you have any indication prior to the time the master caution light came on that maybe you had ingested a bird or something like that? Did you hear any noises? I did not see a bird come down the left side. I did not hear anything. Um, uh, I looked back at the engine. There were no feathers. You know, I, I, I really didn't know what happened. Uh, but what I should have done was, as we're taught in pilot training, maintain aircraft control, which I did, analyze the situation, take the appropriate action, and then land as soon as conditions permit. My analyzation of the situation was very quick. I saw the engine hot light and I reacted. I took the throttle all the way to idle and then very soon after that to cut off. So I shut down the engine probably quicker than I should have. I should have maintained the power straight up to see if the problem would resolve itself and maintain some thrust as long as I could. So instead of winding the clock, like we teach a lot of our students, take your time. There's very few things really uh, in aviation that you have to react to immediately. And I won't say never because, as you know, aviation is very dynamic. But instead of adhering uh, to my training, I reacted. If you were pulling off the target, you were probably only about four or 500 feet over the, uh, off the surface, over the surface, correct? Probably a little lower than that, maybe 100 to 200 feet. Oh, yeah. really? So the ground so pretty rush low. was pretty, pretty yeah. significant. Okay. Yep. You pop up, you roll, you aim at the target, bore sight the airplane, hit the gun, pull away, and then it all happened. Did you... When you were pulling up, I assume you were in a high G situation and you were getting some pretty good vector going up. How long did that altitude gain last once you once you yanked the throttle back and shut the engine down? Yeah, uh, of course, as we know, the A ten has two engines and pretty good uh, thrust for its uh, for its weight. Uh, I didn't really notice any degradation of thrust when I pulled the airplane away from the ground uh, to get some distance between me and the ground to handle the problem. Uh, the airplane was flying fine. And of course, the A-10 is centerline thrust. So there's not a lot of adverse yaw when you shut down one of those engines. So the airplane was very controllable. Uh, came on the radio, told my uh, flight lead what happened and what I did. Uh, and he said, okay, well, let's get pointed home. And that's the point at which everything ended. Did you, were, did you try to restart the engine after that? I didn't uh, because, again, uh, it was... Uh, Fall, winter time in the North German Plains, so it was plenty cool. 
There was really no issue of thrust. There was really no concern about me maintaining uh, my altitude or, or, or remaining in a safe flight regime. He put me out front, uh, gave me the heading back to uh, the airbase, uh, and, and got into the checklist for me. Because, you know, remember, the A-10 is a single-seat fighter, so there's nobody in there uh, to fly the airplane for you or to help you uh, handle these situations. So he got out the checklist. We did any cleanup items that we needed to do and prepared for the single-engine landing back out. And the, the landing then was without incident. Well, I'm here to tell about it. So, uh, yes, it was without incident. In my, in my recollection, again, of course, like I said, this has been a long time ago. It was a perfect landing. Uh, I did everything perfectly. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. And I was able to walk away and tell about it. <laughs> and that's good. Well, what happened to the engine? Um, I was uh, pretty good friends with the GE engine rep. Actually, we attended church together. And so he talked to me a couple weeks later about what uh, occurred and he basically said a foreign object went down the core, the center uh, core of the engine, just uh, bent the fan blades basically and disrupted the airflow through the engine. So he said, if you hadn't shut it down as quickly as you did, uh, the engine wouldn't would have been trashed more or less. So uh, in so other words, said, you had a repairable engine. I did. He said we were able to repair it because you uh, shut it down as quickly as you did. But... Like I said, and we can talk about, sure, we'll talk about this a little bit later in hindsight. <laughs> Probably not the best option. Well, before we do that, and before we take a break, uh, you also told me in your letter to me that your experience goes way beyond the A-10, which is the titanium bathtub, the grunts on the ground, the guys on the ground's favorite airplane. But you also were part of the initial cadre of a very, very expensive and advanced jet. Tell us about that. That's true. After I finished my A-10 tour, I was reassigned to Columbus Air Force Base as a T-38 instructor and just loved that job, loved teaching students, and I guess that's why I still do uh, this today. Uh, but during that assignment, uh, the Air Force was bringing on the B-2, brand new aircraft, as you said, uh, and they were asking for volunteers. So I put my name in the hat and was just incredibly fortunate to be selected. I uh, reported to Whiteman Air Force Base in 1994, right after we had the first B-2 uh, was the third class as an initial cadre instructor to go through the program and was the 64th person in the entire world ever to fly the B-2. An amazing aircraft, an amazing opportunity that I'm uh, just, uh, just very, uh, very pleased to be a part of. I'm assuming that it was no small thing to you that it changed, it so changed the way military planners thought because in World War II, they figured how many airplanes would it take to bomb a target? Now, with the B-2, it was how many targets can one airplane hit right. and only have two people exposed to the threats? Exactly. It was revolutionary. Uh, we, now we're talking instead of airplanes per target, we're talking about targets per airplane or targets per pass. Only two people. My longest flight in the B-2 during uh, that period was 27 and a half hours. Uh, and uh, believe me, I was ready to get out of the airplane when we got it on the ground. I bet you were. Now, did you ever carry a third crew member to help you on that? Because as I recall, there are only two seats. There are two seats. Originally, when the airplane was designed, it was thought there there might be a need for a weapon system officer, electronic warfare officer on the aircraft. But Northrop did such a good job designing the aircraft. And, and really, it's very uh, advanced and automated that they found out they just didn't need that third seat. And so you're right. There's only uh, two pilots in the aircraft. You talk about how advanced it was, but Jack Northrop was on top of that thing 30 or 40 years before it was built. 
You're right. And of course, the reason the Air Force didn't buy that airplane that many years ago is because it was a little bit pitch unstable and it couldn't bomb that accurately. However, with modern technology, there are quad redundant flight control computers in the B-2 that actually keep it stable with active flight controls without pilot input. So the flight controls are always moving to keep the aircraft stable uh, and uh, very advanced technology. I was told that Jack Northrop, after the YB-49, which was the jet competitor, uh, Northrop's competitor to the B-36 Peacemaker, uh, had destroyed, had ordered all of them destroyed, the uh, prototypes and the B, uh, uh, the B-3, XB-35s, I believe, the other flying wing. But back in 1980, he was taken to a secret place, uh, someplace in California. And shown a model of the B-2 with the exact same wingspan as his YB-49. Yep. Uh, You would be very surprised how similar those aircraft uh, are. Pretty cool stuff. Well, let's get back in just a couple of minutes to the lessons that you learned from your A-10 sortie and that shutting down of the engine because it's... It's something that we all need to remember. We need to know know the EPs, but when to apply those EPs, I think is what you're gonna be talking about. We'll take a break and we will be right back. Thanks, Len. There's only one aircraft insurance company that invites you to call them and actually discuss your situation with an aviation insurance specialist. That company is Avemco. What kind of flying do you do? What if you don't fly all winter? Why is it just as bad to have too much insurance as too little? Is there a penalty just for being an older pilot? Call 800-338-8705 or visit avemco.com slash flying. Either way, tell them you're an iLaughed listener and you'll save an additional 5%. Now, back to iLaughed. We are back with Len Litton. Former Air Force pilot, flew A-10s, T-37s, T-38s, even the B-2, and is now a civilian flight instructor, but who had an engine out on an A-10 years ago over Germany, way low over the ground in Germany, and uh, not only lived to tell about it, but learned some very interesting things about how his own responses to an emergency uh, can affect what happens ultimately to the mission. Len, what did you learn about flying from that? Well, the first thing I learned is that emergencies can happen at any time. Um, We've always got to be prepared for them. You know, it's easy when, uh, you know, you're cruising at altitude and uh, things are going fine, the airplane's working great to kind of focus on other things or maybe not keep your head in the game. But particularly at low altitude, on the range, you know, when when you're down uh, flying in the pattern, really always pay attention to if this engine quits, what happens now? Or if I lose my electrical, what happens now? The more you're thinking about that, the more you're prepared for it when it comes, the quicker you're going to be reacting, the quicker you're going to be able to think for that. So fight that complacency. I know it happens to me at times as well. I've always got to tell myself, keep your head in the game. And you tell that to your students with great regularity. They get tired of hearing it from me, as a matter of fact. Uh, by the way, are you a weekend flight instructor? Is that your your primary work is not as a flight instructor? It is. Uh, I work uh, at the Pentagon day to day, but uh, I take my mostly mostly my Saturdays and uh, dedicated to the flight school and uh, instruct there. When you shut the engine down, you told me that you said you you reacted. You just yanked it back to idle and then to cut off. But in retrospect. 
maybe that was not the right thing to do? I would, I would think so because, uh, again, we're taught maintain aircraft control. I did that by flying the airplane and getting it away from the ground to get my altitude some time to deal with the situation. Next thing is take the time to analyze the situation and analyze it thoroughly. Uh, generally, you know, I teach my students, hey, wind the clock, you know, take some time, take it all in, particularly when you're going to do something irreversible, like more or less shutting the engine down, raising, lowering the gear, moving the flaps, uh, something that possibly cannot be reversed. So what I should have done was stand that throttle straight up and then see if the engine would have cooled down because I might have been able to get partial thrust out of that engine without it overheating. And of course, all the thrust you can get is always uh, the better option. Uh, and so uh, I should have talked to my flight lead about it before, maybe run through the checklist. As long as the situation didn't get worse, that wind the clock, take a little time, do a better analysis was what I should have done. Perhaps the term respond rather than react would be a better, better procedure. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is your procedure when that happens? Because I know that you have drummed into you what the procedure is if something like that happens. What what would that normal procedure have been in the A-10? So uh, it would have been to reduce the power. The checklist is going to tell you to reduce power and then look at your engine gauges for turbine in inlet temperature. Just give a better analysis of what was going on in the engine. Because again, if you can keep partial thrust without shutting that engine down, you know, if we would have been heavyweight, if I would have had a lot of bombs on the aircraft, if we would have been at a high density altitude, that one engine might, would not definitely have been as effective as it was in my situation. The airplane was relatively clean. We were in a, a, a relatively low uh, density altitude uh, situation, and so it flew just fine. But under different circumstances, it could have been a lot more challenging. What else did you learn? Uh, the last thing uh, I learned is pay attention to your training and make sure your training uh, is good. I know that uh, compared to my military training and what I see on the general aviation side, uh, general aviation pilots don't spend as much time in Section 3, the emergency procedures of the POH. So of course, in the military, I don't, maybe your, 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 your uh, listeners are familiar, we have boldface items, memorization items that are really critical items that we spout out from memory and write those down constantly. I don't really see that in the GA world. I try to uh, incorporate that some in my training, but I would say that's probably one of the biggest difference I see between military training and general aviation training is that familiarity with systems and the emergency procedures. On that day, when you finally talked to your flight lead, let him know that you gave him the knock it off and told him what was going on, he got you straight and level, got you upright, and then did he go through, and you went through the bold face, but you had already kind of gone beyond what the bold faced items were. I had. Did, did he open the, the, what, the dash one? Is that what you call it? He had, we have a checklist. So the dash one is basically like the general aviation POH, the okay. manual. But the checklist is a abbreviated version of that that we're going to keep in our G-suit pocket. So he pulled it out of his G-suit pocket, turned to that page for engine overheat, engine shutdown, and just walked through all the items with me over the rig. And that had, to, that had to make you feel a lot better, a lot safer, a lot calmer throughout the rest of the flight. Of course it did. And, you know, in, in fighters, we generally fly in flights of two for mutual support. Uh, and his role at that point was to be my mutual support, to help me think through the rest of the emergency, make sure I'd gotten all the cleanup items 
So items that aren't bold-faced, but items that are in the checklist to make sure we've done everything and prepare for that singer into landing. Plus, he was a very experienced A-10 pilot with over 1,000 hours, so uh, he had seen a lot of these situations before. When you talk about the differences, Glenn, between general aviation training and military training, uh, it is... It does my heart good to hear that you're spending almost every Saturday working with general aviation students uh, to have somebody who's going to be there for months, maybe even years to get a student through his training. I know that you would love to get some of your former Air Force or military pilots doing the same thing you're doing. Yes, thank you for that. And listen to my military brothers and sisters out there, general aviation needs you. Uh, please, uh, if you have opportunity, uh, if you're at all interested in this, if you enjoy flying airplanes and teaching while you're on active duty, uh, the FAA has really made it very simple for you. Uh, they will transfer all of your uh, military tickets over to civilian tickets by just taking one written test. There may be a wow. couple of add-ons you have to do there if you've only had uh, multi-engine time and not single-engine time, but it's really uh, very easy. Uh, I had not flown for 10 years when I retired, and then when one of my friends got me back into it, uh, it lit the fire again, and I remembered how much I enjoyed it. And, uh, of course, you know that the military has uh, spent millions and millions of dollars on our training, and I really feel like it's my obligation to give some of that back to the nation. As we know, there's a pilot shortage across the board now, uh, and, of course, and all these flight schools, the youngsters are not staying there long because they're getting their 1,500 hours and off to the airlines. But somebody who doesn't really have airlines in their future and has all this experience Please come out to the flight schools. Please knock on their door. I guarantee you they'll welcome you with open arms and uh, give you an opportunity to give back. Where do you instruct? I instruct at uh, Manassas, uh, KATF, uh, Manassas Airfield, just outside of uh, oh, D.C. Yeah. Flown in there a number of times. So, yeah, that's great. I'll, I'll look you up the next time I'm at there oh, on a Saturday. Do. Please do. Len Litton, what, those are great lessons, and I hope that uh, this will reach some of your former uh, military aviator brothers and sisters to uh, take on the, uh, the very no uh, noble cause of flight instructing and uh, bringing that military experience into the general aviation arena. Len, thank you a ton for being on iLaft. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and a privilege to talk with men and women who have served in our military. They deserve our thanks for their honor, courage, and commitment to protecting our freedom. And it's so good that what Len Litton learned as a military pilot can be translated to all of us in GA, not just students working on their licenses and ratings. Of course, we're all always students. My hat's off to you, Len, for becoming a flight instructor. Thanks to you for listening, and I hope that you'll subscribe and share it with your friends. I Laughed is available wherever you get your podcasts. We drop episodes every couple of weeks, so you can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. And if you've got a story that you'd like to share, and what you learned about flying from that, send it to me. My email address is rob at flying.media. Rob at flying.media. Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of I Laughed, and Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927, I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That. Flying.